funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Silver Screen Video. This is Jonathan, here with my fantastic co-host Jacob, and we have a hell of a guest this week. Jacob, tell the people who it is. You were quite excited about this gentleman coming on. Yeah, I'm a big fan of this guy's writing, uh, Scott Hamra. Uh, He goes by A.S. Hamra when he writes uh, his uh, vital, necessary columns in the Baffler um, he's a great film critic. Uh, to even call him a film critic feels somehow faint praise. He's a great writer. Um, I love his work. Um, yeah, he's uh, really, really, I feel like he's really got his finger on the pulse of just kind of what is going on, you know, in the world of, of cinema at large. Um, and uh, yeah, he was a great guest. And we even uh, had a little bit of a different approach where instead of, you know, picking three movies and focusing them around a director or focusing them around, a, you know, a specific theme. We just, um, he, he said, Hey, you know, I've been wanting to kind of find an excuse to talk about these three movies together. And so, um, you know, that's what we did. We, uh, he picked three movies and we kind of talked about them and their, uh, different relationships with each other and so on. And, uh, yeah, it's a really good time. We, uh, we had a lot of fun. We love to have him back again someday. He was, uh, he was great. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a break from the norm from what we traditionally do. And, uh, and it was nice. It was a good conversation. It, it you know, it was, it, you guys will hear, cause you know, obviously you're about to hear the episode, uh, but it was some, some of the subject matter was a bit heavy. So it was just interesting, uh, to talk about some of this, um, with the way Scott kind of wanted to approach it. So it was a lot of fun for us and we appreciate Scott coming on and, um, yeah, outside of that, I mean, Jacob, where can they go if they want to hear more Silver Screen video? Folks, we do a, uh, a bonus episode every week. We call it Silver Screen Video After Dark. It's where me and John get a little bit, uh, you know, we let loose a little bit. We have a little bit, uh, you know, more of a casual conversation, always movie focused, of course. You know, what we've been watching, you know, that kind of thing. We're just shooting the shit about, uh, about stuff we've been watching lately. You can find that at patreon.com slash silver screen video, uh, where we will, uh, where you can subscribe to that, listen to that bonus episode and, uh, yeah, just maybe chill out with us at the video store after hours, a little bit of a different tone, uh, than, you know, some of our more formal guest episodes, you know, we have, we have, we have people like Scott on here to class up the joint, you know? But uh, the silver screen video after dark is, uh, you know, we kind of let loose and uh, and uh, yeah, we don't have to worry about embarrassing one of our one of our distinguished guests, you know, so. Yeah, no. And and, yeah, and we've got some things we're working on, guys. We'll be ready to announce that next week, but we're doing a change up at the Patreon going to kind of, um, you know, change things up, bring some more interesting projects in and. and, you know, we've been listening to some requests and, and people writing in asking about certain things. So we're kind of kind of incorporate that. And, uh, yeah, we'll be ready to make those announcements next week. We're really excited about it. 
Um, the silver screen after dark will still exist. We're just going to have a couple of new things and uh, we're going to make some changes to how we approach it. So those announcements will be coming next week, but I assure you that they are awesome and uh, we're excited to bring it to you. Hell yeah. So Jacob, if you don't have anything else to add, we'll get to Scott. Yeah, let's get to it. Okay, guys, everything will be in the show notes in terms of uh, where you can find more about Scott, find out how to get his book. Uh, We'll also have Patreon info in the show notes and all all social media as well. Uh, Thanks for stopping by the Silver Screen video, and we hope you enjoy it. Folks, our guest this week is a film critic for The Baffler. You can also find his work at Book Forum, Harper's, N Plus One, and in his brilliant book, The Earth Dies Streaming. Please welcome to the show, Scott Hamra. Hey, Scott. Hey, how are you? Doing good, man. It's uh, it's it's good to finally have you on. I uh, Yeah, welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we. Uh, I'm. I'm a big fan of your work. I. Um, I, I was, I've texted you about this uh, on Twitter and everything. But uh, Ruth Franklin, uh, who we just actually had on the podcast a couple days ago, um, introduced me to your work. And um, whenever she assigned uh, some, I think there was some copies that she had that she passed around. I. I walked right around the corner to Book Culture on One Sixteenth uh, in Morningside. And uh, your book was all right. I didn't even have to ask for it. It was already prominently displayed uh, at the book culture uh, front desk. Um, so uh, I'm a big fan of your work. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk about kind of your career as a film critic. And um, I don't know if it feels like uh, it feels like to me, like maybe you're getting to be kind of a kind of a famous film critic. I don't know if that's your experience, huh. but uh, I think your work is finally getting the recognition it deserves. So what's that experience been like? Well, thank you very much. Uh, well, my book came out in November of 2018, and it's it's done better than the publisher expected. It was published right. by N Plus One. So, you know, got a very, you know, really good review in the New York Times and a bunch of other places like The Nation and Guernica and... Kenyan review and you know it got a lot of really good reviews so that that um that kind of boosted my profile I guess you'd say and then I did a lot of events for it in different parts of the country I did a screening of Ghosts of Mars the John Carpenter film at Metrograph and I did a screening of a Boris Barnett film at Light Industry and I did readings in Brooklyn and Pennsylvania and California so, you know, I've done a lot of things for it. I did a, I did a thing for the book in Austria. Um, and it's been going very well since the book came out. And then at the beginning of 2020, I moved from being the film critic at N Plus One to The Baffler, which has been great. Right. And um, But before that, I'd been writing for N Plus One for about 10 years. And freelance freelancing for the, some of the places you mentioned, Book Forum, Harper's cineast. I just I just had a piece come out in book form last week. It's a long piece on Barry Sonnenfeld, the director of the Men in Black movies and the Adams Family movies. Right. And oh, yeah. uh, in the next and in, in a couple of weeks, I've got a piece coming out for Freeze Magazine that's about Hillbilly Elegy and Nomadland. Okay. And uh, you know, so th- that's what I've you know that's what I've been doing the last couple of years. And before I wrote for N Plus One, I you know, I was just freelancing for a lot of places, but I primarily made my living as a 
as a semiotic brand analyst for the television industry. Um, a semiotic brand analyst. Yes. Can you tell us more about that? And I quit that job in 2016. You know, I worked for a wow. brand strategy firm here in New York that did um, different kinds of cultural analysis for network and cable television brands. Okay. And uh, I went to L.A. a lot for that job, and I had to watch pretty much every show that was on TV for about eight years. Because wow. Oh, wow. our clients were all the broadcast networks and you know many of the um, cable TV networks. Okay. Yeah. So I'm glad I don't have to watch any TV anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, because that sounds like it would be very taxing. <laughs> it was. I saw, you know, like four or five hundred different reality TV shows, you know, series. Wow. wow. And, uh, you know, every quality, you know, that was kind of the peak years of, you know, so-called quality television drama. And, uh, you know, so I don't do that anymore. Uh, I do it freely uh, sometimes no. now, actually. Well, something like that. I mean, is that uh, is that something that you were able to uh, kind of glean anything anything good out of? I guess like is is there any way it maybe like sharpened your critical faculties or like gave you like a new perspective, or was it just did it just kind of suck from day one? No, it was very interesting actually at first. Yeah. You know, after doing it for a few years, I got sick of it because of the volume of stuff I had to watch and because it prevented me from writing sometimes. Um, right. And also because I wasn't really making as much money as I thought I should be. Um, mm. You know, it, it definitely sharpened my sensibilities in, in a lot of ways. And it, it really, I was so intimately involved in the way that television shows are made and then marketed and received by audiences that it it kind of soured me on TV. I don't right. have a lot of respect for television shows, uh, you know, or people, you know, and, and I find it odd the way that TV critics write about television for the most part, you know, compared to films. Mm, how, how so? They just don't, I don't think they're really getting to the heart of the matter with television as a form, and I think they write about mm -hmm. plots mostly. And they, right. anal you know, right. they analyze them politically and, you know, in other ways that really don't have that much to do with what, what's actually on the screen. Right. And they pretend right. oftentimes that, you know, comedy and drama shows are what television is made of when that's really not the main thing television is made of at all. Television is made of right. talk shows right. and news shows and sports and award shows, you know, things that are live oftentimes right. more. And... You know, the elevation of television to, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, it's newly acquired status as an art form to me is a little, there's some wishful thinking involved there. But, right. you know, it makes sense as one form replaces another. So whatever is the newest form gets vilified. So television used to be the vilified medium, but now it's the internet. Right. You know, and then the previous form gets bumped up a notch into a more kind of arty area. And that's what happened to movies. Or to right. a more kind of giant, spectacular area, you know, like Broadway, like what happened with theater and Broadway. Sure. You know, sure. so that kind of happened in movies. So it was interesting to witness all this while it was happening. You know, I worked from the decline of broadcast uh, networks through the beginning of streaming giants. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... <clears throat> 
you know, TV TV criticism is interesting because, or I guess, I mean, I guess just the concept of of television and what it means uh, today. Because I do think there are, um, you know, some people who are um, who are good at, at at writing about TV. You know, like maybe Emily Nussbaum or um, you know some of the uh, some of the more seminal work of Alan Sepinwall. But like, it's interesting because like, what what really is TV at this point? And I don't mean that in some kind of like, you know, bullshit think piece way. But like in the way that you were talking about, like, like what like when we say TV, like like you know, used to, you're talking about something that was designed, you know, for you to just turn on in the middle of the week. You know, something that was very distinct from movies. And now it's like, you know, people are saying that season three of Twin Peaks is the best movie of the 21st century, and you know, it feels like the lines are blurred and it's like, you know, when those lines are blurred to such an insane degree, how can you have like a, like a, um, a kind of rubric for criticism? You know, how can you have like a conceptual framework when you don't even really know what your medium is that you're writing about? Well, you know, I do think Twin Peaks season three was one of the best cinematic things of the last few years. And I don't think television right. critics dealt with it in any real way. Um, right, besides right. trying to figure out the plot and doing recaps of it. Um, right. But most television... So television used to be an appliance that was in, in the home, like a washing machine or a blender or, you know, a radio. <laughs> and now it's right. more like having heat or electricity or having water in your house. That's right. the difference now to me. It's like yeah. a It's like a service... That you that people think they need to live that they turn on like a faucet, right? And it used to be more like, like it, I said, like a washing machine or a blender, right? Something that makes well, noise that you can kind of stare at and, and mm. just zone out. It's really interesting because I remember back in the day, like in the like in the nineties, syndication was king. Like all you wanted to do was make a show that would get That's picked right, up yeah. for syndication. Not just like, well, yeah, it didn't that matter. Was, that was that's. That was true through, you know, five years ago. That's the main thing they wanted. Well, it's weird because, like, it, it, before, like, the a, a continuing story didn't matter. Not a lot of right. character development. There wasn't any even really distinctive seasonal breaks. It was just, this is our show. But now you have, because of streaming services, maybe, I'm not sure. That's why I wanted to bring it up. You have directors and writers describing television as an opportunity to tell a 12 hour movie. And it's like, was that really, was that the purpose of television to begin with? I mean, yeah. So that's why it just gets really interesting because I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just changed so much even since I've been watching TV in the nineties with home improvement and family matters and all that shit, everything has changed significantly. You know, it would be better if these long format series were more like movies. They're not really like movies. Twin peaks was an exception. Um, they they occupy some kind of post TV liminal space that's not movies, and the right. difference is that the, because the main thing with the main thing with the cinema is that you don't control how you watch it and how much time it takes you to watch it. You know, you go into a movie theater and it starts, and you can't control that, and then it ends at a certain point. And if you get up from the theater to go buy some popcorn or soda or to go to the bathroom or whatever, you miss part of the movie. So that's not true with streaming. You control how you watch it and when you start and stop it. 
that's the main difference between television and cinema in, in some ways. Um, th that's the most important difference, I think. And when you don't have that temporal element involved in it, then that's not the movies. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's that's something we've um, that's something we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast. And you know, the, one of the reasons why we kind of started it um, is because I don't know. There seems to be this kind of um, I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you'll disagree with this, or, or I don't know. But like, you, there seems to be this kind of uh, misapprehension or misunderstanding of like what cinema is and, and i don't mean that in like a like a formal way i mean that in like a like what it what cinema is in yes. kind and i think that you know cinema is a 20th century phenomenon that's something that we've we've kind of like uh has become one of our mantras on here it's it's a 20th century phenomenon and like if you're not watching it like that then i think you're kind of misunderstanding what yes. cinema is you know what i mean like it it, it is it is a 20th century phenomenon in the sense that the 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 way that this art form was made and and created and molded, you know, it was to go see this physical object being projected in front That's of a right. room full of people, and that functionally really doesn't. Well, they're exist still projected, anymore. but they're not projected and, from a physical object that are you know it's projected from a DCP. Sure, sure. I mean, it was until sure, the theaters sure. closed, but um, yeah. You know, right, yes, right, right, I right. agree with you. Um, the cinema is a relic of, you know, it's not a relic artistically, but it's a relic as a technology of the late 19th century uh, from a time when it was merely optical and mechanical. It wasn't even electrical yet. Right. You know, you just cranked a, right. a crank right. and it moved the film, uh, you know, behind the lens. Uh, and so it's odd to think of it as this thing that has led to you know, um, watching these very long series on television, I'm trying to think of one that would be funny to mention, but I can't think of any at all right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, well, I think that's, I think that is kind of the main thing that like we have kind of talked about a lot, which is like, like no cinema is dead. And that is not like, that's not a value judgment. That's just a description of like, well, I, that's just the description of things. I don't really I think, think that's know. true, actually. Okay. Um, I don't think that's true at all. It's it's only dead right now because of the pandemic. The you know there were serials in the early you know in the silent era that weren't weren't again weren't like TV, but they were serial in nature. Um, sure. I don't think it's dead. I think a lot of interesting things are being done. And an example of that is that I've been watching La Flor on the Criterion Collection, which is a 14 and a half hour long Argentinian film. Okay. And, you know, I, I've been watching it in short, you know, half an hour to an hour chunks. And when you watch it that way, it's it's basically six stories that are told in a, in a very interesting and odd way that's hard to describe. But when you watch it that way, you realize that it's not television because there are the breaks. It's not, it's not, it's not cut into chunks that make sense. Hmm. You know, it, it has to be experienced as a total thing, you know, which is kind of how Twin Peaks, the return was. So I, right. if, if anyone listening to this has Criterion Collection and they haven't seen La Flor, I highly recommend it, but you have to kind of stick with it. And they've divided it into four parts that are about four hours long each, three and a half hours long each. And the longer okay. you watch it, the more fascinating it becomes. 
but it's nothing like watching a a, a, a series, you know, on a streaming series from Netflix or Amazon or from HBO. It's nothing like that at all. Right. It's hard to explain the effect that it has. But as you're watching it, you know that you're clearly in the, you know, the realm of, of cinema, not TV. Right. And it's right. because of the way the story is told, the way that the characters emerge, you know, the way the shots are made, the way it's cut, how music is used. All those things are things that would not happen in an American quality drama series. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, we'll I'll have to check that out. That's, um, that sounds really interesting. Um, okay, we don't want to let too much uh, time pass before we jump into uh, our topic uh, for this week. Um, you, uh, we, we had talked about it and you had mentioned that uh, you felt like these three movies kind of worked uh, in tandem and would be interesting to talk about. Um, so today we're going to talk about, uh, the 1969 Vietnam War documentary in the year of the pig, uh, John Cassavetes, uh, classic faces, and of course a seminal horror movie from 1968 night of the living dead. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you thought these movies would kind of be interesting to discuss altogether? What, what kind of things they have in common and what, uh, what are some of the similar threads that go throughout these three? Sure. Um, I picked these three films to talk about because I've been interested in them as a kind of trio of films for some time. They all came out essentially in the fall of 1968. Uh, in the year of the pig, Emil D'Antonio's Vietnam documentary did not get released until February of 1969, but it was being screened at festivals and things in the fall of 1968. And Night of the Living Dead okay. and Faces came out in October, November of 1968. So these three American right. films are all out at the same time, and they are all films that are made in black and white at a time when, you know, color had replaced black and white as the dominant form in, in movies. And they are all films that were made outside of Hollywood for between $100,000 and $300,000, which, you know, in today's, you know, today's money, that would be, I guess, between like 700,000 and a million dollars. So they were right. low budget films made kind of outside of Hollywood and faces was shot in Los Angeles, but it's not a product of Hollywood, even though Cassavetes was a Hollywood actor and director. And they, the, these three films are kind of in a situation that's interesting today because they were made in a way that seemed obsolete at the time. But they were really the three best American films of that year, I think. And they're, they don't look anything like Hollywood films. Faces is this very intense drama, uh, marital drama, a, a battle of the sexes film that does not look or sound like any other movie. It's very intimate. It's very personal. It's very, it's very kind of hysterical, even maniacal in a way, in the way it's performed, but not theatrical. Uh, the Night of the Living Dead is a horror movie that kind of changed horror films. It's the first kind of revisionist horror film in which it didn't look anything else. It didn't look like any other horror films that were being made in the 60s. It does not look like a hammer horror film. It's, it's in black and white. It's much gorier than other horror films. And In the Year of the Pig is it's really the best documentary about Vietnam. And it's very it's very unflinching, but it doesn't behave in the way most documentaries behave. It's done all through compiled footage of international news sources about Vietnam, all shot on film. 
including interviews with right. uh, you know foreign diplomats and and people in uh, fighting the war in Vietnam and uh, you know people in the Viet Cong and other and other communists. And all three of these films were really reviled when they came out. In the year the pig was protested, um, theaters were defaced where it was showing. People called in bomb threats where it was showing. Uh, Night of the Living Dead just horrified everyone. It got pretty much all bad reviews, except for from Pauline Kael in The New Yorker. And um, it, it came out at a time when there was no rating system, so a lot of a lot of children ended up seeing it and being quite traumatized by it. And um, the film was really excoriated as a as a perverted, awful thing. And faces, you know, confused and angered people because of the way it it was made. Um, and the way it covered its drama. So all three of these films, you know, in addition to that, had a lot to say about America at the time, and they were very specific about that, and they're all kind of, they're, they're related films in a way. Night of the Living Dead can be seen as a Vietnam film, or a film about uh, about certain kinds of urban unrest. Um You know, and Faces is, is a really kind of violent, uh, you know, a film, it's a film that's very violent in the way that people relate to each other. And all, all three films, right. well, specifically in the year of the pig, but all three films seem to be under, be, be made in a way under the sign of Vietnam and, and the collapse of American society, the collapse of marriage. Um, and, you know, just a total breakdown into almost psychotic violence. And it's interesting to me, the way that Night of the Living Dead and Faces both, both kind of take place in these trapped house situations in which the characters sometimes escape from the, the house, but they really end up having to go back to the house. They're trapped in the house. They don't want to be there with the people they're with. Um, and, you know, I think that this is a very interesting kind of trip, triptych of uh, triptych. I've never known how to pronounce that correctly. <laughs> yeah, of, I don't know either. Of, yeah, of films about American life in, in the late 1960s made at a time when Hollywood was collapsing. Right. You know, all the big budget movies were doing poorly then. Um, the new Hollywood had, had not really begun yet, even though Bonnie and Clyde had come out. The Graduate came out that year, and then Easy Rider came out. But it, it, these three films did not participate in that new Hollywood. They're, they're in some other place from those kinds of films. Right. And it's interesting to me at a time when Hollywood was failing that these three great, amazing, totally original movies emerged all in black and white all for very low budgets uh i feel it's kind of like like today in a way because you know in the last year or so hollywood has really been hollywood and the movies in general have both really been degraded and humiliated by the pandemic and by streaming right so it makes me wonder what kinds of things can be made that aren't hollywood movies that aren't streaming films and yet achieve this level of kind of, you know, this, this kind of ambitious level of commentary and, and, and mastery of cinema. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's interesting. I was, I was looking up to see, um, things that had came out around the same time, not just the same year, but kind of in the same, you know, last half of, of 1968. And, um, I noticed that uh, bullet, uh, came out, um, you know, uh, that same month in October yeah. of 68. 
um, which is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, like you said, that, that seems to be the direction that Hollywood is going and could not be farther from, um, you know, these three movies that we're talking about, but also um, Frederick Wiseman's uh, High School uh, came right. out uh, in November of 68. And that's, uh, you know, that, that, that may be kind of um, uh, linked to the, the three movies we're talking about in a, in a different way. Um, yes. High school, Fred Wiseman's high school could definitely fit in with these bullet does not really fit in. Right. But right, right, right. when I think of, um, when I think of Hollywood at that period, I think of movies more like hello, Dolly, mm-hmm. you know, kind of huge budget musicals with big stars some of which did okay, but many of which were box office failures. Right. Uh, in a time when Hollywood didn't know who their audience was, didn't know who they were trying to appeal to, uh, you know, they thought that was the direction to go, and it proved to be the opposite direction that Hollywood actually went in. Right. Um, John, what did you think about these three movies? What uh, Thinking about them kind of together, what uh, what jumped out at you uh, rewatching these? I know you recently re-watched, re-watched these three right in a row. Yeah. Um, well, first I'll say using the word maniacal to describe, uh, faces is pretty spot on. Um, <laughs> because it was, it was a movie that, um, uh, comparing it to not of the living dead is a good comparison because both films make you feel very claustrophobic and you get these brief moments of reprieve from that, but you still have the lingering, threat so to speak dangling above your head just waiting to return mm-hmm. and uh that because I, I watched those and i watched in the year of the pig last um that was heavier just in a different way because uh jacob as we discussed off pod i feel like with with going to school when we were kids and stuff like we didn't get uh with the school we went to we didn't get a lot of information about the vietnam war in the appropriate way All right. so it's one of those wars where like I've had to like kind of independently as I've gotten older, obviously over the last 10 years or so get information on just to, to, because it's one of those, like, cause you cover the big wars in high school and those are the ones you hit. Um, but this was kind of a blind spot. So this documentary was insanely uh, like in depth, but also like it, it gives you kind of a history lesson almost. Um, on on what happens and and how it's happening and you get to experience um, some very intense moments, uh, especially in the beginning. Just it kind of punches you in the gut to let you know this is what I'm doing. Um, I don't know. I, I I really enjoyed Night of the Living Dead. I liked Faces. I don't know if I enjoyed it simply because it was not the most pleasurable movie to watch, given the subject matter. And then in the year, the pig was just. Uh, it was just intense, really intense. Well, you know, to me, Faces is a very pleasurable film to watch because of the performances and, and, and because of how everyone who's in it is so great. Oh, everyone was great. That's yeah, that they were great. Like, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the characters, like in terms of their their performances. I just didn't enjoy the material right. as well, much. It's a very it's a very harsh film. And it's very, you know, it's very unfair and brutal to the women characters, especially. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're treated very poorly from the beginning of the film. You know, John Marley, who plays the lead, um, is very rude to his staff. You know, he has uh, three women working for him in the first scene of the film. And then to his wife and his mistress, you know, he's just terribly unfair and critical. 
uh, Faces is a very is is a neurotic, very neurotic film. You know, it's a very uh, twitchy and um, kind of aggrieved film. Night of the Living Dead is more psychotic. Right. So, so Faces in a, Faces in a way is more of an inner directed film, even though people are lashing out at each other in it. Whereas Night of the Living Dead is a more outer directed one. It's one thing that was interesting to me in that film is because how they drink so much in Faces and how in Night of the Living Dead they're talking about cocktails all the time. They're talking about tossing cocktails and going out to toss cocktails. Right. They're referring to Molotov cocktails, not the kind of cocktails that the people in the Cassavetes film are going to drink in the bars that they go to in that film. <laughs> right. Um, the Another thing that links... It's interesting to me how Night of the Living Dead and In the Year of the Pig both start with bodies being burned, hmm. essentially. It's not the first scene of Night of the Living Dead. It's the third in, in the Year of the Pig. But that that the films are very closely related, those two movies. We see the bands of townsfolk, yahoos, you know, moving through the town, looking to kill the zombies. It's very similar to the way that the American soldiers are on patrol in Vietnam. Right. And um, the other link between all three films, I think, is the relationship to television, which, you know, we were talking about TV a minute ago. Uh, you know, Emile D'Antonio devised in the year of the pig to be a repudiation of the way that the war was covered on TV. Right. You know, he, he wanted to put everything in his film that was left out of coverage on television, on news coverage on television. And so, you know, the harshness and, and, you know, it's, it's also a very calm film in a way, you know, it's strange that a documentary on the Vietnam war is calmer than those two other films. Right. But by the end, it has this real sense of, well, we're not going to win this war. It's already lost. And, and, and the film ends not to, you know, it's, I don't want to spoil it. So if people don't want to hear about how the films end, I'm going to talk about that now for a second. Uh, in the year of the pig ends with scenes of, you know, American bodies, dead soldiers lying in the mud, mm -hmm. just as in the night, just as night of the living dead ends with piles of dead bodies waiting to be burned by the by the townsfolk who are the militia. And, right. you know, it has the famous ending where the hero, who's black, is, uh, you know, just assumed to be a zombie and, and killed. And there's that amazing cut at the end of Night of the Living Dead in the last three minutes where the action stops and it moves to still images that are, uh, in, you know, still, still zoom in images of the action with walkie-talkie chatter and the sound of helicopters over those images before, after the credits, it cuts back to a bonfire of bodies being burned. Uh, I mean, th that was an unprecedented way to end a movie, you know, even a horror film. And the, the cut into stillness is kind of like the way in the year of the pig ends, mm. you know. And, uh, yeah. you know, Faces ends on a very kind of dour note with the two, with the husband and wife, played by John Marley and Lynn Carlin, trapped in their marriage and separated in their house, but both uh, smoking and coughing and choking on the cigarettes that they're smoking. Right. Faces deals in television because the first scene we see is that uh, an ad company is presenting to John Marley's corporation a, um, a commercial, an industrial film, a promotional film that they're going to, that they've made for his company which we don't, we don't really see the film because it cut, when the projector starts, it cuts to 
a close-up of Jenna Rollins. And the, the, you know, the actual film kind of starts at that point. But the way that these, these kind of crass advertising dudes explain the film to Marley is, is supposed to be ironic, but it kind of applies to all three of these films. He says that um, it's the uh, Dolce Vita of the commercial film an impressionistic, <laughs> he calls it, a, it's an impressionistic document that shocks, but that's also honest, <laughs> which is just empty ad speak, but it, right. it does actually describe faces and the Night of the Living Dead and in the Year of the Pig. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was, uh, that's very funny on the, um, at the very beginning with the, when, yeah, they, like you said, they start the projector and then you see that the, the title yes. comes on the screen. Um but I, uh, you know, something else that, I, that that came up for me when I was watching um, these three kind of back to back was um, the how, uh, uh, you know, you think about 1968 and like faces felt very um, uh, like it was looking in reverse, you know, like the kind of 60s counterculture doesn't really uh, break through um, except for through the. Uh, antics of the um hustler yes. the, the male prostitute seymour uh, cassell's but, character chet chet yes. right even though he's yeah it, even though even though seymour cassell was in his early 30s then he wasn't really you know a young counterculture dude he's playing this kind of swinger hustler in it right right yeah it, it felt very um i don't know it, it like faces feels like the collapse of the kind of pre-existing order yes. you know kind of the decaying uh you know, Frank Sinatra's America, um, you know, very, very Mad Men, yes. you know, to cite another TV show. Yeah, one, of Whereas, the, one of the guys at the beginning is named Draper. Oh, that's Brad right. Draper, that's who's right. also the, the name of the actor, too. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it felt very like Im, like an implosion, you know, that this this kind of culture um, is collapsing in on itself. And I feel like you can find you can kind of. Um, see that in the characters like whereas where like you know they'll be um engaging in something and then all of a sudden one of the characters will just kind of lose it and pop the bubble you yes know? um like when um you know the hustler the swinger hustler chet is all right he says aren't we kind of are we making fools of ourselves yes, that's one and, of the best moments in the film yeah yeah it's it's puncturing yeah. this kind of um this kind of little cultural bubble whereas you know, uh, Night of the Living Dead is 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 it's much more obviously apocalyptic, but it's the the ex it's very external. You know what I yes. mean? The external world is collapsing, right. um, as opposed to this kind of like quiet uh, internal decay of you know this bankrupt culture or whatever. Well, one thing the three films have in common is that although they came out in 1968, which was kind of a high watermark of countercultural America, you know. Um, mm -hmm. it took each of these filmmakers three or so years to make these films. So right. they were all shot in, you know, not in 1968. Um, I mean, parts of them might've been shot in early 1968, but mostly they are films that are more the product of the mid sixties, but they're mm -hmm. so they're pushed to such an extreme that they push their way through and out of the counterculture into the seventies. So the apocalypticism of in, in, of Night of the Living Dead is very, um, you know, it's more Nixon, right? It has a more mm -hmm. Nixon era feel. And I think F right. Faces is like that, too. I mean, Faces is specifically about middle-aged people, so it's not about, you know, young people. 
Um, right. And in the year of the pig, as I mentioned earlier, by the end of it, it's it, it, there's a very clear feeling that America cannot win the Vietnam War. And um, Daniel Berrigan is is, inter- is there's footage of him being interviewed in it, um, where he talks about America as a kind of a sinking giant. I don't know if you remember right, that he says right. um, that um, Vietnam, the resistance in Vietnam was too simple for the complexities of our power. This means the end of a giant. It means the last days of Superman. For those with the capacity for overkill, kill is not enough. And all three films talk about power and and uh, you know and money too. The way that the men and faces deal with women is solely based on power and and money and exploitation. It's the same way that the mm-hmm. uh, American army and the soldiers deal with the Vietnamese peasants that they encounter. Um, and you know. Oh man, that is. That is the, the, one of the most brutal scenes in the movies is when, I mean, the, the American soldiers are like chopping down trees yeah. and just kind of like de- essentially destroying this land. Like that one guy says the land of, of the, where their fucking ancestors are buried. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the native like Vietnamese population is kind of looking on, you know, not even in horror, you know, that would at least be dramatic or at least be some kind of pathos, but they're just kind of looking on in bewilderment, which is even more haunting well the the, like. the end of the film is, is is haunting in that the there's a french diplomat uh interviewed who's an older guy who was there during the french war in vietnam and he talks about the village down below that's underneath the ground even even if the americans wipe out the villages in vietnam the village still exists but it's underground it's it's now with mm. the ancestors and that means that it will always rise and that's that's the plot of the Night of the Living Dead. You know, you know, people right. are buried, but they rise and they come out of the grave and they attack, you know, normal people. Um, I mean, right. the Vietnamese are are, are noble. Uh, the zombies are the opposite of that. They're just kind of abject, and you know, ultimately in the film, when they're at their most active, all they do is is break into a house and just mill around in the house, kind of aimlessly. Um, but you know, I, I feel like the two films are linked in this in the discussion of of the dead rising, you know, and rebelling against mm. uh, the the conformity of of ordinary life in America, which is what Faces is about too. Because these people are being right. stifled by by their desire to you know succeed in America by the most conventional standards. Yeah, I um I want to talk about the um something about faces specifically the the uh kind of aesthetic uh palette of faces um you know i i was reading this um and apologize i'll i'm looking this up now because i i didn't write the guy's name down but um the guy who wrote the um criterion essay for faces um was it ray carney one second no it's a Stuart Stuart yes he's the film critic for the nation yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, he wrote a really good essay where he kind of talks about um, he, he talks about uh, the like visual palette of the movie and how it has become a little bit of a kind of critical shorthand or like a kind of a trap to just talk about um, how ugly this movie is. And, you know, he kind of like kind of dismisses it and then moves on. 
to talk about other things like the the narrative right. and the characters and so forth. But I, I, as someone I, I'd never wow. seen Faces uh, before I watched it, and I was I was struck by the ugliness of it. Like it was, it may seem like it's like kind of critical over, like I like overkill, like a critical crutch. But I don't know. For me, I was just kind of astonished by how. Um, uh, and I don't even want to say ugly so much as uh, just like non-conventional. There's all these like strange compositions and there's like no rhyme or reason. I feel like there's all these edited close-ups. It's very choppily edited. And all of a sudden the camera will just decide to like follow somebody around and be really shaky. It's um, I don't know. It's a really complicated kind of aesthetic um, that I feel like works. Uh, John, what did you think about this? Because this is something we talk about a lot on the pod too is, you know, different, these directors, signature styles. This is, uh, I don't know. This is one of the most, the most dramatic, uh, stylistic, uh, kind of decisions, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, I think that it was like, I enjoyed the movie from, like I said earlier, performances and directing. I just didn't find the subject matter to be all that much fun to watch, but in terms of the style, it was so uh i don't know it could take a distance at times but then it throws you right back in your face i mean that scene when they're laying in the bed and he's just telling her jokes mm-hmm. and he's just laughing maniacally um and she like she's laughing at first then she stops but he's still going like there's so many little moments where the camera just gets it's very voyeuristic at times right, right. um and i really enjoy his style i mean that's that's it's Cassavetes in general, like, you know, it, it makes me think of scenes like from Woman Under the Influence when they're actually in the house and the camera is like really getting in her face and you're experiencing these moments with her, like in this in this very voyeuristic um, type, the same way with this film. And I think this one raises that bar because they're not raises because I think um, that movie came after Faces. But either way, you know what I mean? I think it's really his mo- one of his most it's by far his most intense because this is my first time watching Faces too. It's the most intensely directed Cassavetes film I've seen in terms of just getting well, down faces, and dirty with what's going uh, on. You may know was shot in sixteen millimeter black and white and then blown up yeah. to thirty five. Mm-hmm. So and, yeah. and there was not a lot of uh, extra light used, you know, on, on the set, which is Cassavetes' own house where he lived with Jenna Rollins and a series of bars. So they didn't use a lot of extra light. It was shot in in 16 and then blown up, so it's very grainy. And, you know, Cassavetes, you know, Cassavetes is more interested in the performances than in anything that he would identify as style. So he he doesn't care about mm-hmm. it looking right or look, looking like a proper film or like a Hollywood film. So this combination of things makes it, it makes it look very surprising and even attacking at times. Because it's not an avant-garde film, you know, it has a story, it has actors, it has very accomplished actors, um, and yet mm-hmm. it's something, it's doing something totally different than, than Hollywood does. They have, it has so little in common with that, even though it's in Los Angeles and it's recognizably Los Angeles at times. And, you know, the way that the script is written, too, you, you mentioned the jokes, I, I, I think you mean the scene with John Marley and Lynn Carlin, the, the main two characters, near to the beginning of the film. Yeah, they're lay- and they're laying they're, in bed, yeah. They're, they're in bed after they've argued. And then there's another scene later where he's with Jenna Rollins in bed and he's telling bad jokes. Then there are two long scenes where he's confronting two other men that are interested in Jenna Rollins. 
because she's kind of a you know she's kind of a escort, but it's unclear what she, what she really does. And the film is filled with these men making these bad, terrible jokes over and over <laughs> again. It's it's written in a way that no no playwright or professional Hollywood screenwriter would ever would ever write anything because it's so excessive in its repetitiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and the jokes are not funny. Right. You know, yet yet all the characters when they meet new people, they all seem to know these same jokes. And and that's part of the world of the film, that that this is how these people live in this kind of shallow, superficial, but also very hostile way. Yeah, it's it's um they they all know the same jokes and the same songs as well. And yeah. just that kind of uh that kind of revelry. There there's a kind of um uh, I don't know how to describe, you know, I, I think maybe of like, you know, kind of a, aren't we having fun? Isn't this so much fun? Yeah. You know, or, or, or aren't we just yeah. like, oh my gosh, we're so crazy and we're having so much fun. It reminds me of somebody, uh, you know, some college kids, you know, going out on spring break and just like trying too hard or something to. Well, the film, the film is intensely soaked in mm-hmm. booze. In, in pretty much every scene, people are drinking and, you know, and they're drunk. It's one of the only films where drunkenness is portrayed accurately. Right. You know, it has these highs and lows and people babble and they are repetitive and, you know, people put up with each other just because they know the other person is drunk. And, you know, this is not a way that, um, you know, boozing and heavy drinking are ordinarily portrayed in in Hollywood films. Right, right. You know, it's very, it's, 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 it's not quite naturalistic, but it is more naturalistic than Hollywood. But it still has this kind of maniacal quality that's that's on the verge of hysteria, and um, is very heightened. You know, there's a heightened sense of of realism that is kind of mistaken for naturalism. I think. Right. Um, but this is all part of the film's neurosis, and it's it's kind of it's kind of savagery in a way. And you know, describing it that way, I think maybe makes it sound a little shallower than it is. It's not a shallow film at all. Um, it's just a very stark uh, film. Well, I think the thing that keeps it from being just kind of a shallow representation of like, you know, these kind of, you know, maybe morally and culturally bankrupt, you know, people drinking and trying to convince themselves they're having a fun time. You know, the thing that keeps it from being uh, glib is right. those turning points, the, the, those turning points yes. where someone pops the bubble and says, you know, essentially like, what the fuck are we doing? You know? And, and, Th- those mo- those moments hit like a f- like a ton of bricks when they yes. do happen, and it's 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 like this like awareness of like what on earth are we doing here? You know, like what is aren't we are we just making fools of ourselves? And I think that's what keeps it from being kind of just glib and, and ironic, making fun of these the, these poor idiots. You know, yeah, it's not making fun of them. right, right, and and what. What what's happening and what reminds me of Night of the Living Dead in the film is how at the certain at the points that you mention, certain of the characters are forced to confront the fact that they're alive. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they act like they're dead, kind of. Right. You know, they're they're on they're on, you know, autopilot. Um, but not not in a way like you would see in a movie like Safe or something like that, you know, a movie from the nineties or the two thousands. Right. They're on autopilot, but they're like crazy wind-up toys. Right. And they they have these moments of of realization where they're like, "Oh my god, I'm I'm alive. We're alive. What are we doing?" 
Right. And that's kind of like Night of the Living Dead. Like they're surrounded by people who are not alive. Right. I mean, but it's, it's very mid-century, right? I mean, that's, I mean, I think that crops up in Mad Men too, you know, there's, I mean, Mad Men is one of my favorite shows and uh, one of my favorite, I mean, pieces of just media or cinema, cinematic art period. But like, I think, you know, there's, there's this quote in the pilot episode of Mad Men where Don Draper's like, I'm living like there's no tomorrow because there isn't one. And there's an irony well, there of like, well, no, there is. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you can live like there's no tomorrow all you want, but tomorrow is still coming, you know? And that's, that's such an interesting way to put it is like these characters like have a moment where they're like, wait a second, we're alive. Like, we, like we have, we are people and we have consequence. Like we, we can't just uh, lose ourselves in this kind of, uh, you know, John Cheever, uh, uh, you know, mid-century American, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, in 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 faces, they're more West Coast, so they're not. It's not quite the same. Sure, sure. Uh, and also, the the big difference between well, if you watch the if you watch say the first forty minutes of Faces and then watched an episode of Mad Men, you would see the difference between the cinema and television right away. Right. And but the you know a more a more basic thing that's different between those two works, I guess, is that Faces and Night of the Living Dead both feel like they're in the shadow of Vietnam. Mm, yeah. So so the the existential questions about life are more pronounced in these films that were made at the time. Mad Men's not engaging with the violence of America. Right. And, you know, I wrote a piece uh, for The Baffler a while ago about zombie movies, and I talked about the Black Panthers in it, and the quote um, from H. Rap Brown about how violence is American, violence is as American as cherry pie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think all three of those films, all three of the films we're talking about, are, are you know, examples of how that's true. It's interesting that when uh, he said that, Night of the Living Dead was being shot. Right. You know, when, when he made that speech... Night of the Living Dead was being shot, and it's also you might you might have heard the story about how um, uh, par- George Clinton and Parliament or Funkadelic, I, I'm not sure, maybe both, were traveling through Pennsylvania on their tour bus, and they encountered the shooting of Night of the Living Dead. Oh, really? Yeah, George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic saw that being shot, and they didn't know what was going on. You know, that's a famous anecdote in the Parliament Funkadelic story. But, you know, when, when you put out a record like America Eats Its Young, you know, you're dealing with the kind of issues that these three films are dealing with. Right. And Mad Men is a little too pristine and sealed off from the actual events of American life and its violence. Sure, I mean, sure, yeah. Night of the Living Dead is an explicit statement about racism. The, the lead character is a black man who's, you know, smarter than, the, than all the other characters in, in the film, essentially. Right. And he's, you know, he's like a clean cut guy in a cardigan. And, you know, he kind of becomes a couple with the woman whose brother dies in the graveyard at the beginning of the film. And right. and then the situation becomes like faces with these different couples, you know, kind of squaring off in different parts of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the, the violence, you know, one is a horror movie, so it's a genre movie. And the other is more of a, you know, an indie feature or an art film or, you know, things that those words didn't exist for a film like Faces then. 
So sure. they, they, they attack these, these issues of uh, human interaction and mise-en-scene differently, but uh, they're, they're not, they're not dissimilar and they are, they are, they are saturated with the kind of violence of, of the Vietnam war and politics at that time, mm-hmm. even though neither film is explicitly about, you know, civil unrest, the civil rights movement, riots in cities, uh, you know, or any of that stuff, war in Vietnam, the assassinations of, of important uh, leaders like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Bobby Kennedy. None of that stuff is even mentioned in, in, in these films. Most of those things are not mentioned in the year of the pig, but you can feel all of that. You can really feel right. that palpably in these films, partially because they're in black and white, partially because they're low budget, but also because that's a power that the cinema has. If it's done, you know, at, at a certain level, you know, and that's right. not something that really television traffics in. Right. Yeah. It's, um, and also I think it's drawing from a different aesthetic pool, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's more John Cheever, more Walker Percy, you know, um, you know, than than like you said, I mean, the, the, the kind of, um, violent disruption that, uh, you know, the, the, the 60s kind of wrought on, um, on American life. I'm interested to hear you, if you could talk about, um, do you think there are any parallels? I mean, maybe this is, I don't know, maybe this is the kind of thing that, um, you know, think this is the kind of thing where like, you know, I have a tendency to kind of stretch uh, things too thin to where they don't really match up. But I'm wondering if you see any kind of parallels to this today, because I mean, we do seem to be going through a type of uh, rupture of some sorts. Uh, you know, it, it may be not necessarily similar to the Vietnam War, but I mean, you know, you're talking about a, a generation of people who, you know, lived through the Iraq War. And then, you know, some people say it's the decline of American empire, you know, similar to the way that people are talking about it at the end of the at the end of In the Year of the Pig. But also our proximity to death, you know, especially because of this pandemic, uh, seems like it's really um ratchet it up i don't know do you feel like there's any kind of uh any kind of continuity there's a direct relation between the pandemic and zombie movies right and in night of the living dead there they have to barricade themselves in the house so they won't become zombies um but the the backdrop of american life over the last few years has been one of great violence george Mm -hmm. floyd's murder uh other kinds of police violence the continuing war in Iraq, Guantanamo, you know, Abu Ghraib, uh, you know, that's going back. But this is the history of the 21st century in America so far. Right. And I don't think you see that reflected in any kind of in any kind of artistic or interesting or, you know, inspired or or mature. I'm not even sure how to maybe mature is not the right word, but you don't see that reflected in films because film a lot of films today are not about american society the only way they reflect these things is kind of psychologically because they're fascist and they're about power you know like superhero Mm -hmm. movies and things like that corporate products of giant multinational conglomerates are not going to fast up about the violence that we live with under the pandemic under trump under police violence uh under any of that stuff that's not going to happen right. in films that are made at the, at the level of Hollywood super productions or Netflix films. 
and and well, the um you know a, a lot of films that try to be serious now are just too goody goody mm-hmm. one one thing that's apparent about all three of these films is that that it's not their goal to be right in, in a sense it's not their goal to be to educate in a sense right. it's not their goal to be palli palliatives you know and make people feel better these are very right. um these are very kind of, you know, they, they have a certain amount of anger and in-your-face quality about about American life and, and you know, right. human relations that, you know, films films with happy endings don't have. Right. You know, it, it, it also makes me think of, you know, I think the, the, the defining kind of cinematic event of, you know, maybe the Trump era or the decade or, you know, I don't know if I would say necessarily 21st century, but is uh, I think the main kind of, um, especially the past 10 years, has been that that season three of Twin Peaks. And that, I think, deals with, you know, this kind of unease and disquiet. Yes. And, you know, something is lurking at the deep, dark heart of American society. Exactly. But, but, and I said this at the time, I remember, I remember talking to my wife about this. It, it, he For David Lynch, David Lynch is his... His uh, kind of um, what do you call it? His palette is mid-century. Yes, it is the atomic bomb. Right. You know, like like as somebody uh, younger or more like hip to kind of the 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 despair of today might locate you know the center would not locate the center of evil evil at the atomic bomb. They would locate it somewhere else. I don't know where, but um, so it's interesting you say that because yeah, like there's there is no there is no kind of night of the living dead or faces or in the year of the pig uh, today. Um, and the closest thing we have is, you know, twin peaks, but it doesn't, well, it, it, it isn't in the present. Twin peaks is just more a product of um, the 20th century. It's hard to say if we have those things because, you know, you and I and uh, Jonathan haven't seen every movie, you know, when That's true. In, in 1968, <laughs> I don't think people would, I don't think people in 1968 thought that Night of the Living Dead would have the reputation that it has today. They dismissed it as, you know, trash. Right. You know, Twin Peaks, The Return, deals with violent trauma and its scars in a way that I think is very contemporary. And there's a lot of confusion in Twin Peaks about when, what year it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What year is it? Yeah, there's a sense of an overarching American uh, violence in the film. You know, I mean, it's made by someone who's now, I guess he's in his 70s. Um, so it's not the work of a young person or even a, or even a middle-aged person like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Night of the Living Dead and Faces and um, In the Year of the Pig War. But um, it still has a what's, – what's remarkable about Twin Peaks Season 3 is that they allowed one person to be the overriding artistic consciousness of the whole thing. You know, he, and he directed right. every episode. So that's that's what makes it more like these things. Um, I, I do think it's contemporary. I mean, there were a lot of echoes of like James Comey in Kyle MacLachlan. You know, there there were a lot of political. There were, oh, interesting. Lot, okay. I, I wrote about that in a piece that was in N Plus One called "Heads Without Bodies," which is about the Trump era and Twin Peaks, and it was about some other things too, like the Baywatch movie. Um, mm-hmm. And 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 it was about stalker the Tarkovsky movie, but that's a piece that's in my book. And I do think there were a lot of resonances and there, it was very interesting to watch twin peaks once a week as it was coming out, 
during that horrible spring and summer of 2017, I guess it was, or what, what, yeah, yeah, it was, it was the beginning yeah. of the Trump era. And, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I will forever link those things in my mind. There is something very Trumpy about the evil in Twin yep. Peaks, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think that's, I think that's palpable. And it becomes right. more evil as the film is, as the show goes on, you know, and we realize that these other personalities that Cooper has have, you know, are, you know, done things that are not good. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, it's, it, I'm not trying to, uh, you know, slag off uh, Twin Peaks. I, I do think it's, I guess, I guess I'm just, I, I think that maybe David Lynch's um, cultural touchstones yeah. are, um, are, are seated a, a little bit back further, as opposed to, like you said, you know, something like Night of the Living Dead or Faces, which seems like it is, you know, it is really um, uh, about the violence that is happening right now. Well, it's true. Um, I don't think people today think of nuclear war as their biggest fear, which, you know, Twin right, Peaks locates right. the dropping of the atomic bomb as the kind of central evil in American history. Right. Uh, which is, you know, arguably true. Um, right, right. You know, along with genocide, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I think they're comparable. I, I do. Of course, and again, Twin Peaks is yeah. 18 hours long. Twin Peaks, the return. I think it's good. <laughs> you know, the, 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 this year, or the last few years, because of streaming, have been opening up the cinema to these very long kind of monumental works that are nothing like TV. Even Lynch's Inland Empire from 2000. Five, I can't remember the exact year now, was like that, um, which I think was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, there should be more things like that because the future of the cinema is more in that kind of stuff, challenging things that are not easy, or that are not quite legible to a mainstream audience, I think. Right. Well, I'm going to ask you um, one last thing before we let you go, um, and, and, and maybe this is, um, you know, not to make you labor in your vocation, uh, but a, a, as a film critic, what, um, where should we be looking or where, uh, where do you feel like is kind of maybe the most vital, um, thing that, that is coming out today that is maybe the most similar to this kind of trilogy of films, um, that we talked about. Do you think it is the, the, the Twin Peaks season well, three or do you think, do you think somebody's up to something somewhere that, that maybe the rest of us I think lots of people yet? are up to things somewhere that we haven't discovered yet. Okay. And it's hard to, you know, the pandemic has totally changed my relationship to all this stuff. Right. Cause now I don't like to watch virtual theaters from movie theaters on my computer. Right. So now I'm kind of just, I can, I'm able to pro I can program whatever I want. And I, you know, I write things that I'm assigned to write about. And I write things I want to write about, but it's not like I'm following the release schedule of new movies since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of uh, film critics have just been doing that, and they kind of they show where their real where their where their real interests lie by doing that. Right. They, they start treating movies like TV more. Um, mm-hmm. That's not my goal. So I, I've had a very strange year of film going at home, and. Um, you know, I've watched a lot of things, but I'm not following the cinema in quite the same way as I did before. Gotcha. I don't think anyone is, you know, right. and, and a lot of the virtual festivals, I know they've done quite well. They've gotten more viewers, but, you know, Sundance films really aren't my main interest, you know, right. in a lot of ways. I think that's too, 
I don't think I don't think that's an area of innovation in, in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I um I, I ran into that when we when me and John we we compiled our kind of top ten of twenty twenty. Like I found myself looking at a lot of different people's lists and um John, I know you felt this way too, of us just being like completely disinterested with a lot of these movies that people were kind of saying were good. And I was just like, you know what? Like fuck it. I'm not going to watch any, I'm not going to watch a lot of this. Show. I'm not going to watch David Burns, American utopia. Like that was good. I like, I'm that. sure. I'm Spike sure it Lee is. Did, Spike Lee was had an amazing 2020. Right. I mean, he, the five bloods came out. American utopia came out. He made all these, he made a few short, very short films about, you know, current events, uh, you know, in New York and across the country. Uh, Spike Lee was much more engaged with contemporary reality than a lot of people were. In that case, maybe I should watch David Burns' American Utopia. But I I guess, I guess my point is that like I I found myself just not engaging with a lot of this stuff and wanting to instead watch like David Lynch's YouTube channel or Uh you know uh, things like that, as opposed to um, you know watching the trial of the Chicago Seven to make sure that I've you know seen all of the stuff that everybody else is talking about. You know, well, yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, a lot of that stuff is junk. Right, right. It's just just prestige garbage. It's fake. It's right. hell. Right. You know, let's not kid ourselves. Sasha Baron <laughs> Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman is bullshit. Oh, don't even get me started. Yeah. You no, know? and I you know, I like him. I think he's fine. You know, he's good at what he does. But yeah, you know, why is he playing Abby Hoffman? It makes no sense to me. <laughs> uh, you know, and I haven't seen that yet. I presume I, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna have to watch it to write about it, but I mean, who cares? I don't care about Mank either, you know? Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this this stuff is just ridiculous. It's really... I, I hit my limit when Borat told me to vote at the end of Borat. Oh, yeah. I, that, yeah. that was like, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to check out for a while. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't believe... I still can't believe that the New York Times said that the Borat movie was the best film of the year. Well, I mean, not New York Times necessarily. I mean, Tony Scott specifically, which that makes sense to me. Well, he's the main critic, so, you know. Yeah, no, I know. It's just, it, that, that seems like, when I saw that, I was like, yeah, that seems like a Tony Scott opinion. Uh, Tony, Tony, if you're listening, come on the show. I don't mean to be mean. Yeah, Go on this show, Tony. Tell us why you love that movie so much. Yeah, <laughs> defend yourself. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, it wasn't even that bad, but who cares? Um, right. So, anyway. You know, I, 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 you know, there's a Godard on Godard, the compilation of uh, the collection of Godard's uh, criticism that came out in the 60s. You know, the last piece in there talks about how he he awaits the end of cinema with optimism. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel. Okay. I wait, I wait the end of cinema with optimism or with joy. I can't remember which it is that he says, but that's how I feel too. I mean, this has been a terribly degrading and humiliating year for the movies and right. everyone wants the movies to die. You know, if, if you go on Twitter, you find this hostility towards cinema, um, you know, that I've never seen before in my life. And you know, right. a lot of it is comic, you know, it's just funny that people say some of the things they do, but um, there's a very intense feeling right now that, we should put the cinema behind us and only live in the kind of present reality where we watch new TV shows on our, on our computers and our flat screens and our, whatever our tablets. I don't know. Um, And I think that's really, really strange. And, you know, 
I want movie theaters to reopen and I want the, I want to get vaccinated and I want the pandemic to end, but you know, I don't want the independent theaters that I love to close here in New York mm-hmm. city, but there's, it's such a strange period, you know, that I, I feel like just as with, as what happened with, uh, in the year of the pig and faces and the night of the living dead, you know, who, who would have predicted that those would be the films of the year? I mean, they are in my mind for that year. Right. They pointed to some completely new direction and, you know, and then, you know, new things did, did happen, not as a direct result of those films, but because society had changed so much, you know, and those films were feeling that. Right. And so that, that is an optimistic thing in, in, in a time when, you know, streaming junk is flooding the planet. Hey, you know, that's, uh, I can't think of a better, uh, more optimistic way to end this. Uh, uh, Scott Hamra, thank you so much for coming on and talking about these three movies. Um, and like I said, I'm a huge fan of your work. Um, you got anything to plug? Uh, before well, we my book, go? my book, the earth dies streaming, right? Uh, which is a collection of my work from 2002 to 2018, which you can get at, um, the N plus one store online. That's the best way to get it. But as you mentioned earlier, it's in many bookstores Yeah, and you know, you can order online from that large place that also makes television shows. (laughs) And, uh, also, you know, the baffler of course, where I, you know, appear in most every issue, uh, please subscribe. It's not that expensive and, you know, buy the new book form. Yeah, I, I, I can't recommend all of that uh, more strongly. I, I'm, t- I'm telling you, you and you and Pinkerton and to a lesser extent, uh, Ignacy Vishnovitsky, who I think has maybe given up on criticism. Um, huh. You three are the only true, true guys uh, kind of moving this uh, this this ancient bark of film criticism huh. forward. The, the golden uh, boat. Let me let me uh, recommend also four columns where Melissa Anderson is the film editor, and okay. they publish a lot of great film critics there, like Pinkerton you mentioned, and uh, Andrew Chan, and you know people that I, Melissa herself, of course, and people who I'm forgetting. But that's a great thing to read every week. It comes out every Friday. Okay, four columns. Four yeah, columns. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the numeral four. Numeral four. All right. Oh, and yeah, if you're looking for Scott's book. Uh, don't look for Scott. It's going to be by A.S. Hamra. That's right. Uh, A.S. Hammer, my initials. That's my byline. Yeah. All right, Scott. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Scott. Thanks for coming on. Great to be great to be on. I love it. <laughs>